Our guest today is Mike Capoferri, the owner of acclaimed LA bar Thunderbolt. He has been able to shepherd his cocktail program through this crazy year with innovating at every turn. Mike, how you doing, brother? Oh, man. You know, uh, starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel here. Feeling optimistic about about business for really like the first time in a year. You know, I feel like most of the industry has that kind of collective mindset. We're seeing places like Post for Hiring all over in major cities. We're seeing an uptick in people being vaccinated. These uh, mitigations are being rolled back. So I'm excited to see business thrive. How's the last month been in L.A. for you? Well, yeah, you know, I'm seeing the same things and we are just, we've kind of learned our lesson through the first and second and third set of restrictions being lifted and, and put back in place. And um, we're, we're sort of tempering our response this time. So a lot of people are getting vaccinated. That is the good news. My, my entire staff will be fully vaccinated. You know, LA has, LA has been able to have indoor dining for a couple of weeks already at 25%. Uh, we chose not to jump into that. We are still only serving outdoor um, we made it a whole year without a without a case, without a positive case um, on any of our staff members. That's impressive. We do not want to push our luck now with just like mm. a couple weeks left. So we are waiting until everyone's fully vaxxed. Uh, and the good news is that uh, LA is going to be allowing fifty percent indoor capacity uh, starting on Monday. So we're gonna our plan is to open on the fourteenth. Give it another week after that just to see how the numbers look and and if if it looks like it's gonna stay. Um, and then our plan is to reopen for 50% indoor dining that Wednesday, April 14th. Um, it's, a, it's a big investment. It's a big investment to reopen. So we don't want to do all the hiring, invest in the space if it's going to get taken away within a couple of weeks. So we're waiting. We're waiting. And I think that's the prudent move. And I, most, most owners that I'm talking to that are in this for the long haul are, are waiting as well. I think it makes a lot of sense. Even here in Chicago, I think we got to 40% indoors a little bit before LA, and we are beginning to see a little bit of an uptick. Um, a lot of the health officials are saying it looks a lot like the last surge. So mm -hmm. I think everyone went a little bit too gung-ho before they were vaccinated. It's funny. They have it down to like, yeah, there are two neighborhoods where everyone's just going out to the clubs and ruining it for everyone else. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. It's That's like every city has their own Miami. They're just fucking it up for everybody else, you know? <laughs> it's so true. And you know, like everyone yeah. knows what neighborhood it is. We just don't want to talk about yeah. it because we don't want to be rude. <laughs> totally, totally. Speaking of neighborhoods, let's talk about your neighborhood spot. I mean, it's it's like kind of in a juxtaposition between three neighborhoods. I, I've been to LA, but for those that might have not been, can you tell us about where it's located and how it kind of represents the neighborhood? Yeah, so we uh, we claim Echo Park because that's really the only neighborhood we can claim. It's really the only neighborhood that we like officially fall into. To be more specific, within Echo Park, we're like bordering the historic Filipino town neighborhood. Most people would consider us to be part of historic Filipino town. Like you technically miss it by like a block is where the border is. Uh, same with Angelino Heights. We are kind of like a block away from that. So we're sort of in this like nexus of Echo Park, downtown LA, Chinatown, Angelino Heights, historic Filipino town. Kind of just like right at at this sort of intersection of all those neighborhoods without really falling into any of them except for the greater Echo Park bubble that they all sort of fall in. So uh, we're in Echo Park. We're sort of, there's like the main uh, sunset drag of Echo Park, which is where most of the bars and restaurants and retail are. And we're sort of off in the cut on Temple Street, which is great because we serve like a very residential neighborhood where there's not a ton of other options. So, you know, our clientele is, uh, is probably 50% hospitality industry and 50% people who can walk there. So, and we love that, you know, like we want to be the spot that is like old faithful for 
the neighborhood, the people who are within walking distance from us, because it's a ton of residents right there. I mean, we're surrounded by surrounded apartment buildings on all sides and homes. So it's great. Like we set out to be a neighborhood bar that just happens to have an excellent cocktail program and excellent food. Um, but we just want to be casual, fun, loud neighborhood bar. We're in kind of the perfect spot for that. Yeah. And just looking at the design too, it it just resonates with that, the feel of that area. It's just so bright and vibrant. When it came to designing that space, what was intentional and what kind of fell into it? Because when you're beginning to build out a space, right, you're looking at like just the four walls and trying to figure out, okay, this will work here. Placing the bar here will create the right atmosphere. But were there certain things that were like must-haves? Yeah, so it's a really unique space and it has a lot of history. So it's a, (laughs) it used to be this like very infamous and seedy after-hours spot that operated since like the 70s. Got shut down in 2011. It's called Dinner House M. And like, I still, every week, have a couple of people walk into the bar, take two steps in, stop free, sort of look around and be like, oh shit, I've been here before. Like, is this M? Like, because they used to come party there uh, mm-hmm. before 2011 when it got shut down. It was like very CD, went till 6 a.m. illegally type spot. So it had some infrastructure, even though it had been shut down for, let's see, I leased the space in 2015. It took us four and a half years to get open, which is a whole other podcast. But, uh, yeah, so we wanted to keep sort of the structure of the space. My, my sort of favorite thing to do is to, to engineer the puzzle of the space and figure out where to best put things so that one, your cost of build out is minimized and two, efficiency for service. So the place had an existing shaft for a kitchen, for a hood. So obviously the kitchen was going to stay there and really everything else was kind of up for grabs. So I've designed a handful of like spaces equipment wise, but this was sort of my first foray into like having to do the interior design as far as like decor and color palette and things like that, uh, which turned out to be sort of one of my favorite parts. Uh, It's really fun. I think all the photos you see of the place are during the day because it's just so bright and we get a ton of natural light and it's airy and beautiful. The interesting thing is that like for the first six months, we were only open at night. Like we didn't open until 5 p.m. So it's a very different vibe than sort of what you see when you go look at the photos on the website. Uh, but one of the things that sort of came out of the pandemic was daytime service. You know, we open now and we will continue to be even after we reopen indoor. We're open at 9 a.m. We serve breakfast. We serve coffee. It's like coffee shop vibes with free Wi-Fi, grab and go breakfast, biscuits, sandwiches. And so now people get to actually like experience that like really bright daytime airy sort of design you don't really see at night. I mean, it's still pretty in there at night. Don't get me wrong. But uh, it just looks very different than what you see when you when you look at the photos on the website. And you had mentioned like... Um build out so that you can optimize service and, um, you know, revenue by amount of seats. Is there some cardinal rules that you found have worked best for you or just for that space? I mean, for this space, we looked for a couple of years for spaces and this was a, a little over twice the size of what we were looking for. You know, you have to build your concept around the space. You can't just shoehorn a concept you have in your head into any space you find. So it went from like, we were going to be like a little nook style bar to now we're a full service restaurant with a with a huge kitchen. So the, so the concept adapted around the space. We built an enormous bar. Like any bartender who walks in and gets behind the bar is like, holy shit, this thing was built for speed. You have all this room. You can, you can you know, you never bump it into someone back here. Everything is like very thoughtful about where the equipment was placed and how doors open and the lighting inside the refrigerator. It's like everything was built to be a bartender's bar, uh, which is one of the advantages of having like a bar person involved from the jumpstart of the design process. I wasn't so concerned with seating capacity in there. This is, this is nerdy and like going into the weeds, but because of the type of building we have, we were going to be limited to a 99 capacity anyway. 
I didn't have to like really be a stickler for seating space. I don't have to cram as many tables as possible in there mm-hmm. because I was limited on capacity. So it's pretty spaced out in there. And we were able to do like a huge bar where there's, you know, five and a half feet between the back bar refrigerators and the and the front stainless. So, you know, three people can walk past each other without bumping. And we really, it's a, it's, it's a Rolls Royce. I'm like drooling yeah. over here. That, that'd be so nice. The Most of the bars I work in, it's like, the bartender has to stop bartending so you can like walk past them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've worked, yeah, that's, that was like everything I worked in, but like this, like, you know, we have freezer drawers on the front bar and those can be fully extended while the back bar refrigeration is fully extended. You know what I mean? Like every, like there's that much room and you can still walk between the doors. So it's great. It's a super, it's a super efficient bar, but we had enough interior space that didn't like sacrifice our, our capacity. Thanks for tuning in. We're about to geek out on the science behind cocktails, but before we do that, I want to let you know that there are a ton of amazing resources for y'all at yourwaywardmuse.com. Whether it's just our dope Chicago TV series, our blog, this motherfucking podcast, or our essential bar supplies, we got you covered. And just for y'all that tune into the podcast, use code LISTENTOYOURMUSE to get discounts on our paper plane merch line. Inspired by the modern classic, the shirts are a call to follow your muse. Made from premium, sustainable sourced cotton they are the perfect summer vibe check it out all right let's learn more from mike i'd also like to dive into your style of cocktails whether it's the to-go or what you were known for before the pandemic it always had this sense of sustainability Uh, how do you approach your menu design and what are some of the things that you found to be the most successful well what's interesting is is sort of the reason i think we're excelling at to-go cocktails is it was just like dumb luck that we had sort of built a program around a lot of tech that also translated well to to go. Like, even though we had no idea we were going to be doing cocktails to go when we got started, it was just the style of, co- of, uh, of cocktail we wanted to produce. So the menu's built around like a couple of tenants and uh, every, it's really a rubric, right? So we can, we can pop flavors in and, and switch out cocktails for other cocktails, but they're all sort of going to stay stylistically within this rubric. And every cocktail really is built around a technique, um, something that's, that's pretty unique to us or something that we have adapted from, from what other bars are doing, but we, we basically want to use all the tech, all the science that people are using at cocktail bars that sell a $20, $25 cocktail. And it's all about the show and there's smoke and mirrors and all that, but remove all of the pomp and circumstance. We have super minimal glassware. We don't garnish anything. And we want to sort of like use wording on the menu that is very comfortable for anyone. So we're the kind of bar where someone who knows nothing about drinks and is like your Long Island iced tea orderer can come in and drink a cocktail off the menu and not be intimidated ordering it because they understand all the words on the menu and they're going to really enjoy it and be like, wow, that's amazing. I want another one where like a nerdy cocktail bar bartender can come in, sit across the bar, order the same drink and be like, holy shit, how did you do that? How'd you get that infusion done? How is this so carbonated? How is this so cold when you just pick it up and poured it without stirring or shaking it, like things like that. So Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like the same cocktail to give a different experience depending on your perspective on the drink and every every drink on the menu is kind of that way there's nothing nothing intimidating nothing unapproachable but everything is like painstakingly executed to like serve that cocktail at its peak experience um and a lot of that translated to to go so like we were already you know we were already clarifying and force carbonating our cocktails on site and to do so we had custom refrigeration that i have set to 20 degrees fahrenheit which is the ideal temperature to carbonate a cocktail that's between eight and 11% ABV at, you know what I mean? So like we had all these things in place already so that when to go hit, I just added a can seamer and which I, I was already getting in, in the process of getting it anyway. So we can just take that exact same tech and can it and it can live in that 20 degree refrigerator and we can give that experience to go. 
you know, our, our like sort of stirred cocktail game was based on this customer fridge and refrigeration as well. So that when we serve like the Manhattan variation on our menu is called a round trip and the martini variation on our menu is called the liquid picnic. Those cocktails are just taken out of a 20 degree refrigerator, poured into a frozen glass, spritzed with lemon oil instead of like we make a, a lemon oil solution instead of having to peel a lemon and waste a lemon every time and then hand it to a guest. So it's like super minimal, super clean, just looks like a martini, but it's packed with all these flavors. One of the really cool things that that refrigeration allows us to do, like to use the liquid picnic as an example, is because we don't have to stir or shake a cocktail to get down to the appropriate temperature, I can use things other than water for the dilution in that cocktail. Mm. So the liquid so the liquid picnic, for example, gets, it's, uh, it's a London dry, it's a rosemary distillate, it's a uh, Citron liqueur, Nardini makes Aqua de Cedro, which is like one of my favorite martini modifiers. Um, it's black pepper, tincture, it's salt, but then it gets all of its dilution from clarified tomato water. So mm. it's got it's got this crazy texture and this super umami note because there's no straight water in it. It's just clarified tomato water. And then we just measure out that as the dilution. We bottle it, we store it in this 20 degree refrigerator. And the coldest, I we did we ran so many tests on temperature, like the coldest I could get a... a any of my bartenders to get a martini down to stirring it with any kind of ice was like 21, 22 degrees. Mm. So we serve this at exactly 20. So it's even a little bit colder than you would get stirring it. It's like super refreshing, really bright, has this umami tomato note, but just looks like a, a bowl of clear cold water. You know what I mean? It's like crystal clear. Like, so we, we try to like distill things down to their purest form without any sort of distraction. And all of our cocktails are that way. We don't want any, Fancy glassware. We don't want any garnishes if we can avoid it. One cocktail on our menu gets a garnish. It's our our like namesake cocktail gets garnished with mint because that's like an integral part of the flavor profile. But that's yeah. it. Nothing nothing else gets a garnish. That's a bold move going without the garnishes. What what made you make that decision? It's just wasteful. They're superfluous. Like uh, we went in with the mentality of like I don't want anything touching or in this drink that doesn't add to this drink. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't that isn't an integral part of making this drink better. We didn't even really cut that many lime wedges before service. Like, don't get me wrong. If someone comes in and orders a vodka soda and they want a lime wedge with it, like I'm going to give it to them without any pushback. Mm-hmm. I have these I have these things available for people. But like our menu cocktails are not going to get that. And even if somebody just orders an uh, old-fashioned, I'm not going to peel an orange and spray that over there. We're going to use orange oil that's been dispersed into pure alcohol and in a spray bottle so that I'm not wasting all these oranges. Um, mm. And I just explained that to them. I'm like, look, this is, you know, this is the same thing it's going to taste even better and it's going to evenly spray orange all over your thing. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, a lot of it is the sustainability. A lot of it is like prep becomes much easier. Um, a lot of it is, it's a lot less expensive. I don't have to order all this extra produce. It's just being used for its peels and thrown away. Like we do the same thing with egg whites. Punch just released an article on what we do for sours, which is really cool. We make a hydrocolloid solution. And like, I don't know how nerdy your listeners are, but we'll just like go into it. They so are one the of the most nerdy people. It'll be fun. Okay. <laughs> Great. So, so one of the like very cool things that we do that's pretty unique to our bar. I don't, I don't know anyone else that's doing it is uh, for sour style cocktails. We substitute the use of egg white with uh, a methyl cellulose based syrup that we use. Right. And mm-hmm. so we make a, we make a syrup that is a 50 bricks syrup. So the same sugar content as a simple syrup, 50 bricks. 50% sugar by weight that also has a half a percent by weight of methyl cellulose stirred into it, uh, which is a fucking process. If you watch the the punch, if you go see the punch article, you see what a nightmare it is to make, but we've got it down to a science. Um, and so when we're making a sour, we're using, let's just say a, a straight whiskey sour, right? We're using 
we're taking whiskey, we're taking lemon juice, and then we're using one syrup. So it's your sweet and it's your egg white. You're getting all your foaming from that. We still do a dry shake and then a wet shake. It looks, it has a beautiful creamy head like you would if you'd used an egg. Uh, but there's like uh, like countless benefits to doing it this way. Like from a flavor perspective, egg whites are 90% water. So we're not adding all that extra dilution to the cocktail. You're mm-hmm. There's no extra water. It's just in your simple syrup, basically. Well, a very complex version of simple syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, two, it doesn't, like there's nothing grosser to me than that. 20 seconds after I'm served an egg white cocktail, the smell of wet dog, like no matter what they spray the top with or put bitters over it, like it still smells like wet dog to me. Three, it's vegan. So if we have a vegan customer, they're not worried about an egg white drink. Four, like I'm not wasting an egg yolk every time I use an egg white. I don't mm-hmm. have to rinse. I don't have to rinse the crusty shit out of my tins between every time I make a drink. So there's a, there's a ton of reasons why we do it this way. Um, even over aquafaba, like I I don't like the taste of aquafaba. Mm-hmm. It tastes like beans, and like you're also adding a ton of extra dilution to your cocktail when you use aquafaba. So we sort of like there's like sustainable reasons, but like everything is set. Everything we do is to make that cocktail more delicious. Mm-hmm. And if we can do it sustainably, we're going to do it sustainably so that. It's just like an added benefit of the egg thing. Yeah, it just seems like those two worlds are melding really nicely together for your concept. And I think a lot of people are going to take your lead on that. So Well, and it also lends itself like accidentally to be all these things are more shelf stable. So they mm-hmm. work better to go. Like most of our canned cocktails have like a 30 day shelf life. Yeah. Which is crazy. And like people can keep them at room temp for that time and then get them cold again. And they're still going to have a great experience. It's still going to get, it's still going to be super carbonated. It's still going to taste great. So yeah, we just kind of we just kind of were fortunate to have a lot of those those operating procedures in place when the like the go ahead happened on to go. And speaking of to go, just based on your operating procedures, what was the? I mean, it seemed like the initial switch was pretty easy. I would just love to pick your brain about your approach I mean, to it was, that huge change. It happened quick. So basically, I mean, we had. I mean, the timeline's a little blurry now, but we shut down on March fifteenth. We only closed one day. We closed the 16th. We reopened on the 17th for to-go. To-go cocktails weren't allowed yet. So we were just doing food. We really started promoting beer and wine. I instantly went from, we carried six wines that were all available by the glass to now we have like a 50 bottle, like whole natural wine shop that's all available online. And and like, we're like the neighborhood wine store now. So we started with wine and beer, but I saw that New York had allowed to-go cocktails and other cities were following suit. And so we kind of knew it was coming to LA. So I lined up the can seamer. Um, and then we started, started sort of going through how are we going to sustainably and effectively pack all these cocktails? I think that, uh, people look at what we're doing with the can seamer and think a can is their like, like be all end all approach to, to go cocktails. And I, I, everyone I can like get to stand still long enough to tell them I'm like a can seamer is not your to go cocktail program. It only works for very specific type of cocktails and you have to have a lot of technology before you even get to the canning point to make a can an effective vessel. Like Mm -hmm. I do not recommend canning anything that is not carbonated. I do not recommend canning anything that is not built to be, I mean, we use eight ounce cans. Like you can't give someone an eight ounce old fashioned, you know what I mean? Or else you have to sell it for $25 and no one's going to see the perceived value in that. Everyone tried to do like Negronis and margaritas and stuff in a can. Like it is not the vessel for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we use it for very specific things. We sort of re- jiggered a lot of our recipes to be seven and a half seven and a half ounce builds all our carbonated stuff is now built to be a seven and a half ounce cocktail mm-hmm. between eight between eight and like 11 percent alcohol so that it fits perfectly in that can it keeps that can like fully pressurized and it'll stay carbonated because there's not a bunch of like extra headspace in there 
um, what we do for our non-canned stuff uh, was really rely on our vacuum sealer. I don't know if you've seen anything about like our bagged cocktails, but mm-hmm. plastic plastic and glass bottles are, are just shitty containers for to-go cocktails. Like they're just, they're super fucking wasteful. They're really expensive. They don't actually adhere to the law, at least in California, of being like a one-time open, not resealable vessel is what you're supposed to put it in. Mm-hmm. But any cocktail to sell it to go. So like a can is perfect. Um, but we just use our vacuum sealer and we don't even use the vac seal function. We are just using the the heat sealer on it. So uh, we take vac bags and cut them into a ton of different sizes. So we do just like a straight rectangle bag that we seal like our Manhattan and Martini variations into. We do a two compartment bag for the P-Town Boxing Club, which is our best-selling cocktail by a landslide. It's a, it's a, our old fashioned. So it's uh, coconut oil, rye whiskey, pandan, salt, and go. Super simple. All the sweet comes from a pandan syrup that we make. But we do a two compartment bag that has like your, our big penny pound, two inch clear ice cube in one side and the cocktail on the other. So they get that like full bar experience at home where they get the clear cube. Mm-hmm. Um, they get the, co- they get the cocktail exactly like it would be in the bar. Um, we do for our peach thunderbolt, which is a julep style cocktail. We do a three compartment bag that is like a tube of the liquid, a little slot for the straw. We use agave fiber straws and then another compartment full of pebble ice. So like they can, and it's, it's crazy. It's perforated. So they peel it. They can open the liquid, pour it into the pebble ice and drop the straw on and you drink a julep out of a bag. Like it's really cool. So we went, we went crazy on the bags and we make them all by hand. It's a fucking nightmare. Like (laughs) to make those bags for the julep, it's like somebody is spending half their shift just making 25 of those. Like it's a nightmare, but it gives us really cool experience. We make really pretty labels that we just print in-house on uh, Avery templates like it's it's totally in line with our vibe of being like minimal but the best outcome possible <laughs> if that makes sense yeah we just took the same approach to the to go we want the whole goal was like we're not going to sell a cocktail to go unless we can give like 99 percent of the experience they would have at the bar like i want it to taste exactly the same temperature everything mm-hmm and just hearing all of this it kind of segues into developing methods to generate profit from what this all sounds like it sounds super amazing, but a lot of people would hear this and be like, that must cost so much in labor to keep that whole machine moving. Are there little tricks that you've been able to find to be able to support um, your price points or is it just- I mean, uh, when we were to go only, like just to be as transparent as possible for that first time, like most of our staff was like real cool to make unemployment with all the stimulus that was available. They were making more money, you know, than they were working the three shifts a week than they did at the bar. So mm-hmm. like I just did, I just did everything myself for the first like four months until outdoor dining came back. Um, and I had people who wanted to learn our techniques basically come stage and work and help in exchange for like training on all this equipment, which was awesome. I just like a few industry friends who like didn't want to see Thunderbolt die came and just like lent a hand, which was amazing. When I brought our staff back, it was only outdoor seating. So essentially our indoor space became a factory. So I mm-hmm. wasn't spending a lot more on labor than I would have just to staff the bar for service that night because our cocktails, because service is so fast and because no one's sitting at our bar, it's all outside. Basically the whole space was converted to a production facility. People would come in and order at the bar behind a sneeze guard, go sit down and we would bring everything to them. So I could have a ton of prep going on during service. Like mm-hmm. something, and this is what we're dealing with now is like when indoor comes back, I can't have that. I can't have the whole space be a production facility. I mean, I'm talking the whole space. If you can see it, like we have a bottle shop built in half the space. And then behind that was a whole pallet of 6,000 cans, a can seamer, 
all this crazy boxes of merch from all these side projects we're doing. You know, the space is not ready. Like the kitchen, the back sealers are on the bar, the can seamers are on the bar, the centrifuges are out. Like all this shit has to find a home now that we're opening indoor dining. So I wasn't spending a ton of extra on labor because my bartenders for service were also doing the prep for to go, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. So, so now as I, uh, as I start preparing for, um, 13 days out from reopening for indoor 11, 12 days out from reopening for indoor, how do we one, find a home for all this equipment Two, how do we replace that prep? And so basically one of my bartenders who just is like all about prep, I'm hiring as a full-time prep person, essentially, who's going to still work one bar shift, maybe two a week, and then is just going to handle prep because now we're open all day. So he can be there at eight, 9 a.m., three days a week so that my bartenders are not even doing any prep when they come in. They just come in and they're ready for service. The The tricky part is going to be like, we've become known for our to-go stuff. It's a huge portion of our income. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do I keep, how do we like set pars for how many of each cocktail is prepped for on-site service and for to-go? And like, do I have enough refrigeration space to do both? And do we just serve things in a can for on-site consumption because we already have a can for to go or is that super wasteful like do we need to use the can for that do i is there even you know what i mean like it's going to be there's a million things to work out like things people don't think about when they're like oh i'm allowed to reopen indoor i'll just open tomorrow for indoor like we have weeks of work to do to get to the point where we can reopen our doors for indoor so you know i don't know what profitability is going to look like i know that i'm about to be spending three times in labor what i was for just to go service Mm-hmm. We're going from we're going from being open six hours a day to fifteen hours a day. Yeah, so it's gonna be it's gonna be wild. Uh, it's gonna be it's a big gamble. Like leaning into breakfast service, leaning into having a full time bottle shop on site um, mm-hmm. for wine and spirits. Uh, while it, like I'm gonna be allowed to do wine forever, but we still don't know how long being able to sell spirits and cocktails to go is gonna last. They haven't made it permanent yet. Yeah. So, but the second they do, like we can lean in hard. They uh, there's been a bill introduced but it hasn't been passed yet for California for permanent off-premise sale. So we'll see. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Contact. Everyone should just contact the representatives and be like, I, I would like to live in the 21st century, it's, please. That would be great. Yeah. Can we, can we please get rid of some of these like hyper archaic blue laws that like have mm-hmm. nothing to do with like how alcohol is consumed and served in this yeah. century. Yeah. It's crazy. It'll pass. You're- I'm feeling, I'm feeling lucky. You know, I, I feel like it will too. Enough people have tasted it too, or they're like, oh, this is so convenient. I'm about to like go, go sit at a park somewhere, like go hang out by the beach. I would love to grab a couple of cocktails, canned yeah. cocktails that work great. And then just go to your favorite spot, support them. And no one's dying because they can come buy a great canned cocktail from me instead of walking to the liquor store and buying a $2 buzz ball and drink it out on the sidewalk. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if that's allowed, why am I not allowed to sell it to go? So, you know, it's, it's like, it's actually a lot safer and it can be a lot more responsible because when people are like leaving at the end of the night, like they don't have to go do shady shit. I can just sell them five cocktails to go home with, you know, mm-hmm. like go home, get, get drunk there. You know what I mean? Like get out of yeah. here. So I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully I can't imagine who's going to lobby against it. My hope is that it passes because there's not, no one's like willing to put up that fight when they know it can save restaurants. That's the main yeah. thing. Too, that there should be such a bipartisan feel for that. Not that California has to worry too much yeah. about, you know, it being split in half. But mm. I mean, business be, is business. And, yeah, that's true. The state <laughs> legislators, <laughs> man, they're wild. Yeah, this shit in California, man. The, the 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 fact that there is a second party in California is really rearing its ugly head these days. 
it's it's fucking crazy. In ten years of living here, it's like I'm just starting to see it for the first time. It's like this mm-hmm. this fringe this fringe that like drives into drives into populated neighborhoods just to start a fight. And it's then that's real. It's fucking crazy. I drive by a fucking Lassen's like natural food grocery store, and there's like a anti mask Trump rally three months after the election. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, you know, it's people who just want to come in and start a fight. It's wild. Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't know about California that I've noticed is like the second you get out of, I don't know, uh, like a, a two hour drive of the ocean, like it immediately begins to start turning very red in that little desert over on the other side. Of the oh, mountain. yeah. People forget yeah, that, like but being, it, it's there. Being from from like the outskirts of Atlanta, I am very familiar with rednecks. You know, <laughs> I, I, I lived amongst them forever. And then I didn't realize until after being in California for a couple years that like, Every state has their own. I, uh, I consulted on a I consulted on a bar program in Bakersfield. I was driving out there like twice a week. I saw more Confederate flags in Bakersfield than I used to see in Atlanta. Like it's wild, crazy. There. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like what is going on? So you know, every 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 state has their rednecks for sure. That could be the uh, the name of your your tell all novel. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Even California has rednecks. Um, memoir. Yeah. I'd like to dive into um. We had talked. You talked about like a rubric for your cocktail menu. Is there certain styles that you think that every menu should have represented, or what are your thoughts on when it comes to looking at that cocktail menu? You have to have a swizzle. You have to have the cart, the highball. You have to have the sour. What What do you think? For us, it was like uh, it was like we had ten to twelve techniques that we were like really hyped about showcasing. And so we kind of built our we kind of built our te- we kind of built our rubric around the technique, which did translate to a style of cocktail, but more so than just being like you need a shaken down tequila drink, you need you need a martini variation, you need a Manhattan variation, you got to have your signature house old fashioned. You know what I mean? Which which I I think you kind of do. I think that's important. But like a lot of our cocktails don't really fit within the standard the standard boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to focus more on the techniques, things like clarification and carbonation, things like the methyl cellulose egg white replacer, things like uh, serving a, like our espresso martini is killer. And it's served on like a forced nitro tap. Like it's the only cocktail we have on tap, um, but we wanted to showcase like forced nitrogenation. Um, we have like these crazy, we have like a crazy water system that I built into every well has like a, it's a cold plate. And then you have two handles. You have like a, a cold still water, fil- like hyper-filtered still water, and then a cold sparkling water tap at every well. But that sparkling water tap, we haven't used it since shutdown, has a has like a juice pump to it so that I can, we basically reverse engineer the Toki highball machine at every well. So like it pumps cold booze through the cold plate up to the highball tap and mixes it at a specific temperature. So we like rotate in a highball the month that is served cold on these little like highball taps that we built. So like... Everything's built around it, built around a piece of tech, um, and mm-hmm. then and then we we sort of made those those fit into vessels or vehicles that people are comfortable with. Like this is, you know, a fat washed coconut rye whiskey with a pandan syrup that we make in the sous vide circulator, but it's an old fashioned, and everyone's comfortable with an old fashioned. So mm-hmm. we don't put all, we don't put all the language about the technique on the menu. It just says, Town Boxing Club," uh, you know, coconut rye like rye whiskey coconut pandan um and then we have like a little piece of subtext on every menu item that kind of explains what it is and it's like it says an old-fashioned ode to historic filipino town 
And some people know they're getting an old fashioned. Mm-hmm. They know the flavors that, that are going to be in there. They don't need to know unless they ask and they want to know like what the technique was. That's a really good balance to have because you never want to like alienate an audience, especially if you're a neighborhood. No. Joint. Yeah. I told him, I was like, we're never going to put the word clarified on a menu. You know what I mean? We're never going to yeah. put, we're never going to put infused or fat washed on a menu. I don't, mm-hmm. I hate, I hate those words on menus. Like just talk about the flavors that are in the drink, put like a conversation starting descriptor on there. So people know what they're getting. They have an idea mm-hmm. And we even have little icons of the glassware on the menu, like above the cocktail. It'll be like a long glass with bubbles. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you, so you know it's a carbonated cocktail. So we give people enough context, and then if they want to know more about, holy shit, like why does this like clear carbonated drink taste like a pina colada? Then I'm happy to tell. I totally um, take that. That's that's a great yeah. approach. Thanks. We've been through a lot, right? This whole year. Um, Everyone who's worked in the restaurant industry, whether they've been working, whether they've been trying to adjust their cocktail menu, what would you say based on all of that uh, for the for our industry? What should stay the same or like our core cardinal values? And what do you think should change to move forward through 2021 and beyond? Uh, I mean, I think food and drinks should cost more money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think it should be more expensive to go out. I think it should be seen as more of a privilege and a luxury than a right. I think... If people don't come out of this, like treating hospitality staff better from a customer and like an ownership perspective, like there's something very wrong. Like mm. I think that a safety net and like things like healthcare need to be more readily available to hospitality employees. Like they're just the fact that like all of a sudden bartenders and servers and cooks were considered essential workers made it like very difficult to keep them safe. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that I think that like hopefully there's not another pandemic anytime soon, but I think it just really highlights the vulnerability of our industry. Um, you know, I think that if anything, it highlights how slim profit margins are and how literally just like a week of being slower than usual can shut people down immediately. You're having to close for two days can shut down a massive multi-million dollar investment business. So, you know, our industry's fragile and I, we all learned that the hard way. Uh, if we didn't know already. So things need to be more expensive. People need to be taken care of more. Um, there just needs to be, there just needs to be more support for the industry and the people who work within it. So, you know, as an owner, like we can do some stuff, I can do stuff for my tiny little bubble of nine employees that I have right now, but there just needs to be like a, a national and global effort to understand how integral this business is 